Advocates of civil asset forfeiture claim it is a powerful weapon in the failed war on drugs. But is it? I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this Insight to Action, we talk with Dr. Brian Kelly about the conclusions of his study, Does Forfeiture Work? Also joining the podcast is Jeremiah Mosteller, the Senior Policy Analyst on Criminal Justice Reform for Americans for Prosperity, and Dr. Dick Carpenter, who serves as a Senior Director of Strategic Research for the Institute for Justice. Here we go. Jeremiah, let's go ahead and start off, if you don't mind, explaining to me what civil asset forfeiture, what it, what it means, what it is, and what it's supposed to do. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dwayne. Uh, civil asset forfeiture is a legal mechanism that allows law enforcement to seize and keep property that is suspected to have been involved in criminal activity. Initially, it was created uh, to fight pirates, but then really pivoted to, to attacking the drug trade and gangs and drug cartels that were involved in that activity. The thought was if we can either seize their revenue or seize the drugs in transport, we can break up those distribution networks and really stop those harmful products from coming into our country. Sadly, that's not actually what happens in practice. Uh, In many instances, no crime has ever actually occurred when civil forfeiture is used and law enforcement is still able to keep the property. And in some other instances, the owners of the actual property don't even know the property is being used for crimes, and they must fight to receive the return of their property. So we start with pirates, we go to to drug dealers, and today it's just being, what, used kind of willy-nilly as the police see fit? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, So they are able to use it if there is some suspicion of criminal activity. Uh, Some of the cases that we see are just people having a couple thousand dollars of cash in their car and police believing that it's drug money. But in the end, there are no charges actually brought against the individual for drug crimes. So there's no proof that that money was ever actually connected to any type of drug or criminal activity. So tell me about the study, uh, Brian, tell me about the study that was recently done about civil asset forfeiture and what your conclusions were. Sure. The Institute for Justice was able to obtain uh, state-level data, that is, data on forfeitures um, done by local and state police agencies, as opposed to federal agencies. This has always been difficult to do because most states don't keep very good data, but um, Institute for Justice was able to assemble data for five or six separate states. I then took that data to test three propositions. The first proposition was one that proponents of forfeiture often raise, which is that forfeiture funds allow police to be more effective in policing. Basically, it's what we economists call an income effect that by the additional income that they receive allows them to be more effective at their jobs. Second was that forfeiture has a material impact on illicit drug trade or illicit drug usage, which, as uh, Jeremiah pointed out, has become one of the chief motivations for forfeiture, stated motivations. And then the third one kind of flipped things and said, well, let's ask not what forfeiture does, but let's ask what causes forfeiture. And so I looked at the impact of local fiscal stress, that is municipalities running into uh, money problems, and asked, well, does that affect the amount of forfeiture, um, forfeiture actions, the amount of, and the money, amount of money collected by police? 
So starting with the first one first, I measured policing effectiveness by looking at what's called clearance rates, which is how many reported crimes are cleared by arrest. And I found that there was not a material effect. Uh, the, there was a little bit of statistical significance scattered in the data, but for the five states I looked at, which are Arizona, Hawaii, Iowa, Michigan, and Minnesota, there was no material impact of forfeiture on uh, policing efficiency. So that's one of the arguments of proponents that was not supported by the state data. Second argument is that forfeiture is a useful tool in fighting illicit drug usage. There we used, I used the um, survey data from the um, federal, federally sourced survey data on drug usage, the most complete drug, illicit drug usage data that there is. And I found that forfeiture has absolutely no association with illicit drug use. In other words, if forfeiture increases, there's no corresponding decrease in illicit drug use. And I measured five different, I used five different measures of illicit drug use for that. Now, well, let me just finish this summary. Then moving on to the third one, does local fiscal stress predict forfeiture? Here, to somewhat honestly, to my surprise, I found a very powerful effect between local unemployment rates, which are often used as a proxy for fiscal stress and forfeiture. If, un if local unemployment rates go up by 1%, Forfeiture revenue goes up by eight or nine percent, which is a very, very large effect, and it, the statistical statistical significance was very powerful as well. So that was perhaps the most striking result in some sense of the study, and it was um, also the results shown in an earlier study I did two years ago using federal data. Very similar results of increased unemployment tied to increased recourse to forfeiture. So does that conclusion tell you anything? I mean, when you when you look at that data, what what inferences do you draw from it? Well, to take the last one again, uh, it seems that police agencies are turning to forfeiture to uh, gain funds. Now, one might say, well, isn't unemployment highly associated with uh, crime? And couldn't that be an explanation? Well, first, during the period study, the that association was very weak. But second, I controlled for the level of crime. And so that explanation doesn't hold water. And so, and I controlled for the number of police officers in each agency. So it's not a matter of the police forces growing or shrinking uh, during the time, during uh, recessions or during boom times. And I used the period, uh, it's about 2005 to 2016, if I remember correctly, maybe 2014, that covered the Great Recession. So it had a lot of movement in economic variables, including the unemployment rate. And the only conclusion after controlling for all that that I can see is that fiscal stress leads police to try to gain more funds from forfeiture. Dick, when, when you look at the work that uh, the Institute for Justice has done and all the uh, the research and all the you know efforts that you've your organization has put into that, would you agree with that conclusion? Yes, although those in law enforcement will vehemently deny that there is any kind of financial incentive involved. Um, when, you, when you look at one research study after another, like those that Brian has done, for instance, um, you'll find that one study after another seems to show that uh, the 
the, uh, the arguments, the justifications that law enforcement will make for civil forfeiture just simply do not stand up to scrutiny. And what's left is the most obvious, and that is the profit incentive. And even in kind of guarded or, or unguarded moments, you'll hear law enforcement officials kind of admit or acknowledge that there is, in fact, a profit incentive at work. And the fact that Brian found this, I think this is a very important point to make, the fact that Brian found this in two separate studies with multiple different specifications at the state level, at the federal level, at the state and federal level combined. Uh, and then when you look at that with other types of studies that have been done by others, it's just building this consensus that the typical justification by law enforcement doesn't hold water and the what you might call the alternative um, explanation, that is the profit incentive is a much more powerful and logical explanation. But what would you say to those who who would still argue that it's still the property of criminals that, that it's being taken and that's still a net benefit regardless of the motivation? Yeah, how do you know that? <clears throat> how do you know they're criminals? You haven't charged, with, charged them with any crime. You haven't convicted them with any crime. So how is it that you know that they're criminals? You, you, sometimes we'll hear people in law enforcement say, well, we're, we're, we're taking stuff from bad guys. Well, how is it you know that they're bad guys? If they're bad guys, charge them and convict them of a crime. And then we will know that they are, in fact, bad guys. We, we largely wouldn't be having this discussion if civil forfeiture were abolished or civil forfeiture didn't exist, if all of this were done as criminal forfeiture, much of this discussion would go away. One feature would remain, and that is the profit incentive. There's still a profit incentive that's present even in criminal forfeiture. But by and large, if civil forfeiture didn't exist, many of these issues that we're discussing right now just would not exist. One of the things, Jeremiah, that I, I think about when I was listening to to Brian talk about his study was something that, that Vikrant Reddy said before when he talked about the fact that when you look at, at civil asset forfeitures, you will find police stopping uh, cars more often going west on I-70 than on east because the belief is that the cars coming to the east are bringing the drugs, the cars going to the west are taking the cash. And that kind of correlates what this study has found. Can you think of any other any other uh, evidence that would go along with correlating that? Yeah, I think Internet, Interstate 70 is not the only one. We saw very good exposés in South Carolina and Tennessee showing very similar results that law enforcement are sitting on the west side of the interstate versus the east side. So again, they're just trying to get the cash versus the drugs. And, and that's concerning as an individual who lives along a east-west uh, interstate here in Virginia. I would rather see them stopping the drugs coming in and stopping the cash going out. Um, I think I would actually be interested to hear a little bit more from Dick about how they got their data. I know that Brian said he focused on five states. But I know in the third edition of the Policing for Profit report, you guys actually worked on about 45 different states. And I know there was some indications that was a very difficult process. So I was wondering if you could explain to people listening today that how do we actually know so much about this practice and how difficult is it to actually find out about what's going on? Taking those in turn, kind of in reverse order, 
Uh, I'll start by saying it's exceptionally difficult to know what's going on. Things have improved significantly since the first edition of Policing for Profit, which was 2010. Uh, at that time, we started collecting data or trying to find data in 2007. It took us several years to, to get data and produce that first report. Um, so things have improved somewhat since that time, but they're still miserable when you think about the significant threats to property rights that and due process rights that are associated with civil forfeiture. So the, the way we typically go about this is number one, we'll go to states that have their data available online. And there are some states that do that. And some states are starting to do even more of that thanks to work that we have been doing through our legislative team in creating transparency laws in different states. So states that make their data freely available online include places like Arizona, for instance, or California, um, uh, Minnesota. Now, the quality of those data, that would be a separate discussion. Sometimes the quality of the data are quite good. Sometimes they're in, sometimes they're just miserable. Uh, but sometimes states make their data available online, and then we download those and, and go through the process of organizing them. But in many states, those data are not available online. And so we have to go through a FOIA process and that FOIA process often takes months and months and months to fulfill and receive those data from those states. Sometimes we only have to go to a central state agency like the state police or the attorney general to receive those data sets. But other times you have to go agency by agency in order to get those data. And it's a very cumbersome process. Now we we do that, and that's part of the work that we do, and, and IJ is completely supported by donors, take no government money of any kind. And, and so thanks to the, to, the, uh, to the generosity of IJ donors, that's what we do. But if you're an interested citizen, or if you're a professor at a university like Dr. Kelly is, the time required to go out and gather, gather those data are a significant disincentive. In fact, they're often so great that people just don't have the capacity to engage in it. And then there are even times when we have to sue in order to get data. So we have some long running lawsuits against the United States Treasury Department, for instance, to get forfeiture data from them. So the process of getting, getting these data out of state agencies can be an extremely um, time consuming and resource intensive process. And then once you have the data, then it's a it's an, it's an equally large task of getting those data into shape in order to do the analyses. So the data that we were able to gather for Dr. Kelly were those that really fit particular parameters. We knew that we wanted to, or we wanted him to look at change over time. So we had to have states that had data that covered a, a fairly long time span, and we had to have complete data, and we had to have um, data down to the agency level. So there were certain parameters that we had to apply to these data. So even though we started with more than 40 states of data, once you applied all these parameters, the, the number of states just got smaller and smaller. So we ended up with, with like five or six that would actually allow the type of analysis that Dr. Kelly did. And Dr. Kelly, uh, would love to bring you in for a second. Would you say those states are representative of what we see across the country? Or are there ways that people could say, well, no, you just cherry picked states, which it sounds like what Dick is saying you didn't, but could people allege that you just cherry picked certain states for this study? 
We definitely did not cherry pick the states. The states chose themselves by having adequate data. So that's the brief answer. Uh, and second, apart from the fact that the five states all have active forfeiture programs, there's nothing unusual about these states. And of course, nearly all states do have active forfeiture programs. So it wasn't a random sample in the sense that we didn't pick them randomly. We picked them because they had the good data. But beyond that, I see nothing special about forfeiture as practice in those states versus anywhere else. Well, I'm, when I'm looking at, at what you've talked about and the, the reasons that Jeremiah gave for even having a, a forfeiture program, the idea, it seems to be that this program would would disincentivize illicit drug use or, you know, the smuggling of illicit drugs, the sales of illicit drugs. But you're saying that it has no impact and that, in fact, it seems to be more utilized to to kind of bolster a, a, a city government's problems or a state's problems. When when I think of that, I, I can't help but wonder, is this because is this because they're of the way they're doing it? I mean, could it be a valuable program, but it's just being misapplied for the wrong it's being applied for the wrong reasons like like we s- spoke about earlier we see stops on the westbound rather than the eastbound is this a program that is salvageable or is it something that we should look at and say this is going to be abused regardless let me just take a quick uh take my take on that and then turn it over to dick and jeremiah I knew about forfeiture before I got into it because I uh, worked in international trade. Forfeiture occurs when when you have an importation and the importer doesn't pay the tariffs if there's tariffs due. And much of the original rationale for forfeiture was to protect the revenue. That is, forfeiture was a tool that was used when the government revenue was um, not being paid, particularly on cargoes that were imported, perhaps because of piracy, without the tariffs which were the source of government funding for so much of our history being paid. Well, there's a use of forfeiture that I think most people wouldn't find terribly um, you, you know, terribly uh, objectionable. You seize a cargo when the owners of the cargo don't pay the tariff, and perhaps you can't even locate the owners. So we can identify these narrow areas where forfeiture does make sense, and there might be some others as well. But to me, the idea that the funds must be, the assets associated with the crime should be forfeited without a judicial proceeding, just seems a little bit loopy. I mean, I I don't see that there, it's as if a municipality could um, exercise eminent domain over a property without any sort of hearing or anything, just take the property away. Uh, except here, it's, uh, the property is often $200 in, this, in, in someone's wallet who's driving across the country. So there may, there may be reasons that forfeiture should be applied in narrow circumstances, but it's extremely broad brush now. And that's, from what I've seen in the data uh, given for forfeiture, pulled up. When you look at the history of forfeiture, I am that at the beginning, and I think Dr. Kelly's getting as well, there are particular uses of forfeiture that seem fitting. Piracy, uh, uh, obviously the historical example, Dr. Kelly just gave us other ones. There might be some other ones that could include the ability to access 
people who are committing crimes because they're in a country with which we have no extradition treaty, for instance. So if we have the inability to access uh, somebody who is committing crime, but we have the ability to access their uh, funds, that could be another one, for instance. Um, so if forfeiture were limited to those narrow uses, we would not have this conversation. We would not be talking at this time because it would not be generating the same kind of threats to property rights and due process rights that it is now. But forfeiture has expanded so much that it is, it is a policy, a tool that has experienced significant creep in its application. It is now expanded far beyond its original intent and arguably far beyond what it can reasonably hope to accomplish. So Dr. Kelly mentioned that there are people who are swept up in forfeiture whose property values are very small. In fact, in policing, the latest edition of Policing for Profit, we found that the, the average size of a property that is seized um, is less than $1,300. This is not El Chapo. This is not a major drug kingpin. This is a person who's driving from one city to another with cash in a car to buy something they found on Craigslist. That's the type of person that we're talking about here. It's not major drug kingpins that are being swept up inside a forfeiture. Um, it's also worth putting a few uh, other numbers out here, and that is, to what extent is forfeiture civil versus criminal? If these were tr truly criminals that can be charged and convicted, if this was something that was really targeting a significant problem, significant drug crimes, we would expect that there would be large percentages of these that are being or could be processed as criminal forfeiture. In fact, much of this is civil forfeiture. So for instance, the Department of Justice, when you look at civil versus criminal. The Department of Justice, 84% of its forfeiture is done civilly, not criminally. In Arizona, it's 93% civil. In Connecticut, it's 71%. In the Treasury Department, it's a whopping 98% that is done as civil versus criminal. So, And those are just in places where we have data. And there are very few places where we have such data, but where we know um, this this disaggregation, the vast majority of this is done as civil rather than criminal. And Dwayne, I want to jump in and I think I just want to clarify for the listeners what the biggest concern here is with that civil versus criminal dichotomy. In the civil system, the prosecutor or law enforcement is actually bringing the lawsuit against the property, not the owner. So they're actually suing the property to forfeit the property. And I know you and I have talked about this. That's when you get crazy names like United States versus 640 or 64,695 pounds of shark fins because they're suing the property, not the property owner. And the reason why that is concerning is because many of the due process protections we have in our constitution that our founders left us do not apply in these civil cases. They only apply in the criminal case realm. And so all we're saying is this is still a great tool. You can use it to stop crime. But think about using criminal forfeiture. Show us that there was a crime, prove there was a crime, and then you can keep the property. That's all we're asking law enforcement to do. And Dwayne, you and I talked about this. I believe our law enforcement can do that. I think they are capable and they are more than willing to do this. We've just given them a tool that allows them to abuse innocent property owners.
Yeah, I, I, I have to jump on that and say two things. Number one, people will often say, well, this is a few bad apples. Uh, you know, it's not the law. It's just a few bad apples. It's just a, few, you know, it's people who are will take advantage of the law for their for their own benefit or for their agency benefit. That is simply not true. We actually uh, commissioned a study by an experimental economist, uh, Bart, uh, Bart Wilson at Chapman University, who found empirically that is not true. The problem is the law. It, the problem is not those who are. Um, in law enforcement. So I think that's an important point to make. The second one is, to Jeremiah's point, we know that forfeiture can be used uh, uh, in a criminal-only environment by looking at New Mexico. New Mexico in 2015 significantly reformed its forfeiture laws. So now you have criminal forfeiture only in New Mexico, and they significantly significantly closed a loophole in the form of equitable sharing, something that we haven't talked about at this point. But it's, a, it's basically a federal program that enables states to get around their own very restrictive laws um, in order to continue with forfeiture. So New Mexico closed that loophole significantly. So New Mexico is showing that forfeiture can be done in a criminal only context. Um, and, uh, and what we found in the most uh, uh, recent edition of Police of a Profit is it does not result in significant increase in crime. Things uh, in New Mexico have not all of a sudden become a, a criminal haven, a, a pirate's cove. Um, crime did not significantly increase as a result of that forfeiture reform in New Mexico. Uh, let me jump in on one more aspect of that. Um, earlier work I've done, I, one element of it was I noted the percentage of police forces that around the country that use forfeiture. And for larger police forces, say the largest 1,000 in the country, probably, not probably, I can be more accurate than that, well over 99% frequently use forfeiture. So this isn't an occasional thing. I'm not saying that they're using it inappropriately, but they but it's widely used. Uh, police have been trained for 30 years to use forfeiture. There's formal training programs on it. So it's not something that uh, just happens occasionally. It's a regular part of policing. Looking, Listening to this entire conversation, I'm trying to think what the three biggest takeaways would be. And I'm thinking one is we see an increase in, in civil asset forfeiture during times of fiscal stress in cities and states is that right or is it just um, cities that that is correct I, I didn't separate state agencies from municipalities uh so collectively cities and states yes okay the number the second point i would think uh, dick just said that this isn't a law enforcement problem it's the law itself that is the problem what would you guys say is the the third biggest takeaway if there is a third. Uh, to me, as kind of coming from the data end, I would like to see proponents of forfeiture who put forth these propositions like it's an effective tool in fighting the drug traffic, provide some evidence of that. To me, the biggest takeaways in pretty much all the forfeiture literature that I've seen, which has flourished in the last decade, is proponents making assertions and people who look at it critically saying, there is not really any support for that assertion. So to me, a huge takeaway is proponents need to step up to the plate, work with this very difficult data, and show us that their rationales for forfeiture 
hold water? I would add that uh, forfeiture can be reformed and it can be done so effectively. And New Mexico has provided a really excellent model for that. So to the extent that <clears throat> forfeiture proponents will say, oh, you know, this is this can't be done. It is, is very difficult to do. You'll hamstring law enforcement. It'll produce uh, increased crime. We have already seen those things do not happen and will not happen because of what happened in New Mexico. And second, we, we have seen that it can be done and can be done effectively, again, as we have seen in New Mexico. So this idea that somehow reform is not possible and it's going to produce terrible outcomes, those things just simply do not hold water. And what does the reform need to look like? Number one, we should do away with civil forfeiture. First and foremost. Second, we should remove the profit incentive in forfeiture generally, not just civil forfeiture, but in criminal forfeiture as well. The financial incentive should be removed entirely. And number three, the equitable sharing program should be just canceled entirely. Um, and that would in enable, or that would prevent rather, uh, the ability of states to get around their. Uh, restrictive state laws and run to the federal government in order to continue forfeiture. And I think I'll just throw out, they both have said everything I would want to say, but just want to point out, New Mexico is the best example, but there's more than 30 other examples of states that have added restrictions, and we've not seen massive spikes in violent or property or drug crime there. So even though New Mexico may be the best example where they've completely stopped civil forfeiture, other states have consistently added restrictions without us seeing problems in public safety. Thanks again to Dr. Kelly, Dr. Carpenter, and Jeremiah for joining the podcast to talk about civil asset forfeiture. If you have any questions about this particular priority initiative or any of the others, please send me an email at i2a at afphq.org. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.